0: Listen to what the Old Testament tells us about verifying certain claims, about establishing the truth of an accusation, about confirming the validity of an assertion. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's a verse quoted uh, or alluded to at least in many passages in the Old Testament. We can think most famously, maybe, most famously of Jesus talking about where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there in the midst of them. The context of that quote is the context of church discipline. So we recognize how that verse fits two or three witnesses. But in our internet age of information overload and competing disparate voices, this is an extremely healthy and helpful principle. In our age of radical subjectivity, where a person's personal claims, if they fit the accepted script, that is, a person's personal claims are to be automatically accepted as valid. In that kind of age, this is an extremely healthy and helpful principle. And regardless of the day and age, when someone claims to be God's chosen messenger, God's chosen vessel, when someone claims to be divine, this is an extremely critical principle. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's an important principle, critical principle? Jesus certainly believed that. We know because we see it in Luke chapter, sorry, uh, in John chapter five. Look with me at John chapter five. As we once again return again, as we return to John's gospel, our ongoing study, let me remind you that we are in the middle of a conversation here in chapter five. Maybe it's more accurate to say a confrontation between some of the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus. Now you may remember verses 19 through 30, Jesus was clarifying for them His relationship to God. Though He was Himself divine, He was not God's rival. He wanted them to understand He was not God's rival, He was God's Son. And in verses 19 through 30, we see him clarifying what it means that he is God's son. We see him clarifying the relationship between the father and the son. But wait a minute. Can't anyone make lofty claims about having a divine status and mandate? Well, yes, of course they can. And they have all throughout history. And even today, many people claim to be God's chosen messenger, God's chosen vessel. Jesus understood this. All we have to do is look on our streaming services to see movies about cult leaders from the past 20, 30, 40 years who claimed to be God's chosen messenger to bring a message from God. As I mentioned, Jesus understood that anyone could make these kinds of claims. This is exactly why he pivots in verse 31. Notice in verse 31, if you open your Bible up there or pull up your Bible app and take a look at John 5, verse 31, notice how he addresses this issue about making such lofty claims. Look with me at verses 31 through 40. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Do you see what he's saying there? If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the tes- <coughs> the testimony that I receive, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved he that 's John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So right away, Jesus is clear about making personal claims. Do you see that in verse 31? If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that his testimony about himself is not accurate, that it's somehow incorrect. No, no, no. He's simply saying that it isn't to be believed just because he says so. So why should they listen to Jesus? Why should we listen to Jesus? Did you notice in keeping with Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, Did you notice that Jesus provides in this passage, not two, but three witnesses in order to establish his claims, these lofty claims? Think with me about those three witnesses, the three witnesses presented here in this passage. First of all, in verse 32, Jesus reveals, there is another who bears witness about me. Who might that be? I believe Jesus is speaking there about God, the father. The father testifying to the son is clear. It's clear in verse 37. Take a look at 37 again. Uh, The father who sent me, he himself, uh, he has himself borne witness about me. Do you see that? What could be confusing about verse 32 is that the very next verse, verse 33, in that verse, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, John the baptizer. But did you notice how John's ministry here is spoken of in the past tense? Verse 33, he has borne witness. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp. This past tense may reflect the fact that John was in prison by this time or had been killed. We know this from the other gospels. But the one who's spoken of in verse 32 is not bearing witness in the past tense, He's bearing witness in the present tense. Look, there is another who bears witness about me. That's the Father. The Father's witness is mentioned first in this passage because ultimately the other two witnesses mentioned in this passage of the three are connected back to the Father. Jesus will go on in chapter 8 to explain these ideas in more detail. We read... In John chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, and verses 17 and 18, John chapter 8, we read this. The Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. That's what Jesus just said in chapter 5. But look at how Jesus responds, or listen to how Jesus responds. John chapter 8, verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself... My testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Again, Jesus, his testimony about himself is not incorrect. It is not inaccurate. It is the truth. That's what he's stressing in this passage. Verse 17 of John chapter 8, he says this, "...in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true." There's Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. If the father bears witness about you, you can be sure that is a trustworthy testimony. So why talk about John the Baptist? If we're talking about in verse 32, God the Father bearing witness of the Son, why talk about John the Baptist in verses 33 through 35? Because not only have these men heard John's testimony, we know that from chapter one when the Pharisees, the the Jewish leaders had sent a delegation to John to ask him if he was the Messiah. We know that they knew the testimony of John, but Jesus may have a specific instance here a, a specific moment of witness in mind as he talks about diva, the divine witness to and through john the baptist john the baptist declared in john chapter 1 verses 33 and 34 that god spoke to him and identified jesus as the messiah jesus as the son of god by causing his spirit to descend on jesus According to the other Gospels, the Spirit came in the form of a dove. It came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And it was accompanied by this declaration. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Talk about a divine testimony. Talk about a heavenly witness This is the Father bearing witness to the Son to and through the ministry of John the Baptist. But again, Jesus is clear in verse 34 of John chapter 5. Take a look again at verse 34. He's clear that the testimony that I have received is not from man. Right? He doesn't want to focus just on John the Baptist. He's pointing to the Father beyond the baptizer, the one who had called and commissioned the Baptists. In fact, we heard in verse 36 of John chapter 5 that the testimony Jesus has is greater than that of John. What is that greater testimony? Well, that's the second witness, witness number two in this passage. Look back at the second half of verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Though they were more fixated on when it took place, Jesus doesn't want these Jewish leaders to forget what took place at the beginning of this chapter. Most likely only hours before this conversation slash confrontation Remember, a man unable to walk for 38 years, 38 years of paralysis, 38 years lying on a mat, 38 years of desperate, in that desperate condition, and we read at the beginning of John chapter 5 that that man had been miraculously healed in an instant by Jesus. Jesus. And let's not forget this. Let's not forget what one of the religious leaders, one of these religious leaders, had stated only two chapters earlier, two chapters earlier, had stated to Jesus. John chapter three, verse two, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it wasn't just this miracle of the healing of the man lame for 38 years. It wasn't just this miracle that was confirming the lofty claims of Jesus. It was other miracles, miracles that these leaders were well aware of. So the father is bearing witness to and through John the Baptist and the miraculous works of Jesus are also bearing witness that, to use Nicodemus's words, that Jesus is from God and God is with him. Two witnesses already bearing witness to who Jesus is. But there's a third witness mentioned in this passage. Look again at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Did you know that the writings we call the Old Testament all point to Jesus? In one way or another, they all point to Jesus. From the seed of Abraham to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, from the sacrificial lamb laid on the Israelite altar to the king. Who sat on the Israelite throne. From the highs of the psalmist. To the cries of the psalmist. From the big themes of Yahweh as creator. Yahweh as shepherd. Yahweh as king. To the very specific prophecies. Of the coming Messiah. All of it finds its fulfillment. In Christ. As the apostle Paul would later write. For all the promises of God. Find their yes In him, in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. And, And Jesus himself had declared this. He had declared in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's Jesus saying, don't think I came to abolish the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In speaking to these well-studied, highly knowledgeable men, you can sense here that Jesus is communicating something like he communicated to Nicodemus two chapters earlier in John chapter 3, verse 10, where he said, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? The very writings to which they regularly turned. The writings, the very writings these men regularly exalted should have been the very thing that exalted Jesus in their eyes and caused them to turn to Him. But let me stress a point I made last time. Everything Jesus is telling these men is being communicated with one goal in mind. He makes it clear in verse 34. I say these things so that you may be saved. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders who were confronting him, who were accosting him. He is saying this to them. I say these things to you so that you may be saved. but they want to point their fingers at him instead of bowing their knees to him. And you can hear, because of that, you can hear the anguish in Jesus' voice in light of this. Verse 39 and 40, the scriptures bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do you hear the heartbeat of the gospel in those words? The good news about Jesus, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that that God speaks about Jesus into our world today and says, I say these things so that you may be saved. The gospel rescues us. It is good news of rescue. But at the same time, as we heard here, it is it is us who refuse that life. It is us who refuse the goodness of God who turn away from him until his grace is poured into our lives, poured upon our lives to open our hearts, to give us life. There's the good news. There's the gospel. I say these things so that you may be saved, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But this is an important example. The the example of Jesus is such an important example for us here, isn't it? Think about it. Think about the heart of Jesus displayed here for those who were accosting him, his opponents. If more Christians today were concerned about their opponents receiving mercy from God rather than mockery from pundits, about seeing them saved rather than squashed, redeemed rather than owned, humbled rather than humiliated, I think we would see the kingdom of God coming in even more beautiful ways than it is now. I think we would see the kingdom of God advance in ways that it's not doing now. But as we think about what is revealed here in terms of these Jewish leaders, as we think about their witness, about what is confirmed here regarding their spiritual condition, we need to see where Jesus goes starting in verse 41. I do not receive glory, that is praise. I do not receive praise from people. He's not interested in coming to get the, the approval of people. Jesus doesn't pander to the crowd. Verse 42, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. A stinging word from Jesus. Yikes. Yikes. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory that is praise from one another and do not seek the glory that is the praise or commendation that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who, present tense, accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So remember that Jesus has already pointed to the spiritual poverty of these men in verse 38. Remember what he said there. Look at what he said there. You do not have God's word abiding in you. How does he know that? Because for you do not believe the one whom he, God, has sent. That's how Jesus knows. Notice he says something very similar in verse 42. How does Jesus know they do not have God's love within in the same way he knew they didn't have God's word within because, verse 43, they would not receive Jesus. Those in whom God is active are those who embrace the one whom God has sent. Those in whom God is active are those who embrace the one whom God has sent. But did you see how Jesus gets even more specific in terms of diagnosing their condition? Diagnosing the spiritual poverty that leaves these men sadly with only their guilt and an expectation of judgment. You see, Jesus doesn't need their approval. He's not interested in that men's approval, but approval is exactly what these men crave. The problem is that these leaders of God's people care more about the approval of the people than they do the approval of God. More about the approval of men than they do the approval of the God who made them. They didn't care if a man bore witness about himself as long as he fit in their box of tradition and privilege. Why was that so important? that he fit in that box because it was in that box. It was in that box that they sought and found their validation from others instead of God. And though they claimed, as we read la- as we, you would read later in chapter 9, verse 28, though these men claimed that they were disciples of Moses, they were not interested in being disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of Moses though they claimed they were disciples of Moses it was the example and words of Moses that presently condemned these men why is that because Moses his hope was in the one who was coming the one who god his hope was in Yahweh his hope was in the god uh, who had redeemed them from Egypt the savior His hope was in the one who gave them the law, not in the law itself. So, why listen to Jesus? Let's come back around to that question. Why listen to Jesus? Well, what do we heard this morning? Because God himself has confirmed that Jesus is who he claimed to be. God himself has confirmed that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He did this when he testified of his identity to John the Baptist, number one. He did this through the miraculous signs Jesus performed, number two. And God did this through the Old Testament scriptures that predicted the coming of the Messiah. All the types and the patterns that pointed to the coming of the Messiah, number three. Three different witnesses, one source. Wonderfully, all three of these witnesses still speak today. All their voices are preserved for us in the Bible. Isn't this why John was writing this gospel? To preserve and highlight seven signs that point to, that testify of Jesus? This is what he wrote in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe that life is only found in Jesus because he is the Son of God, the Christ Or are you looking for life out there in the world? Are you looking for life from some other person around you? John has written this gospel. He could have included many signs, as he says, that are not written in this book. But the ones that are written, the seven signs given here, are written that you may believe Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And he still is today. But think for a minute about the warning we also see here. The warning God gives us here through Jesus' indictment. Jesus' listeners were the men he was talking with, the religious leaders, some of the religious leaders. These were men who knew God's word. They poured over the scriptures. They were in their Bibles a lot but according to Jesus in verse 39 they did this because they believed there was some kind of formula uh, there was a pathway there uh, if mastered it could lead them into eternal life You see they had depersonalized the scriptures They had depersonalized the scriptures. They had removed the person, capital P, from the Old Testament. They had that hook on the side of the stage and they were pulling off. They had pulled off the main character from the stage of the drama of redemption chronicled in the Old Testament. They had turned the Old Testament into a formula where maybe the word God was important as a word in the formula, but God was gone. The law and the prophets were no longer about knowing God through the Word. They were about for these men showing God one's own righteousness in light of that Word. And it was that focused, that focus on depersonalized performance depersonalized performance. It was that focus on religion over relationship that drove these men to seek approval from one another rather than God. If you are honest with yourself, if I am honest with myself, aren't we still tempted to do the same thing? Doesn't matter how much time you spend in the Bible. Doesn't matter how well you know the Bible. If that devotion to Scripture isn't ultimately about God, about knowing, loving, and serving God, that devotion will always, always, always and only be about you. Your performance of the word will push out the person who wrote it. Person with a capital P. Its precepts will be viewed as a means to men's praise. And our so-called knowledge, our so-called sight, will leave us ultimately blind when it comes to the testimony about Jesus. To seeing, Receiving and following Christ. Just as we see with the men in this passage. Brothers and sisters, friends. This morning, would you carefully consider this two-part question? Whose approval do you ultimately seek? And how does that shape your practice of faith? Whose approval do you ultimately seek and how does that shape your practice of faith? When we rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall in light of what people have said or what they might say, we are far more inclined to make our faith and God's word into a people-pleasing tool into people-pleasing tools, our faith and God's word. Whether that means we water down the word to make it more palatable to those around us, or we turn it into a ladder, a ladder that we supposedly can climb right up into heaven itself. Depersonalized performance. But when we listen to the word... When we listen to the word itself and its manifold witness about Jesus, we find something far, far better than human approval and human performance. We find the approval of God through the performance of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? We find the approval of God through the performance of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And through that approval of God, that connection with God, being reconciled to God through the performance of Jesus Christ, we go on to find comfort, don't we? We go on to find peace. We experience rest, incomparable, unparalleled rests. We find assurance, reassurance that comes from Christ and the life that he died to make ours. His performance on the cross, completing the work in our place, taking our sin, taking God's judgment, his wrath upon himself, putting death to death through his death and rising again to give us new life in his new life. God is speaking to you this morning through his word. God is speaking through his word to you this morning. To what end is he speaking? Listen to his answer. It's right here. I say these things so that you may be saved. I say these things so that you may be saved. Do you hear God speaking to you today? Do you hear his word to you from Jesus in John chapter 5? The heart of Jesus for his opponents is God's heart for his enemies. Enemies he reconciled to himself by his grace. God is calling you this morning. Maybe God is warning some of you this morning. uh, Warning you about seeking human approval. But to each of us, he presents Jesus. Three witnesses that point to Jesus and point to the fact that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He is who he claimed to be.